What does it take to become an elite 40K player? How do the top competitors overcome bad dice? The Competitive 40K Network presents Art of War Unbroken. Insight into the game plans of the top players on the planet with your hosts, Blake Law and the Art of War Coaches. Hello and welcome to Art of War Unbroken. Champions may lose, but their spirits remain unbroken. I'm your host, Blake Law. This is episode 26 of the podcast. And once again, we are absolutely thrilled you are able to join us. They say we learn the most from our losses. That is what this show aims to do. We are interviewing elite players who have lost one or two games at a major event. We're going to break down the mistakes, how they hope to learn from them, and just talk about that elite player mindset. How often have you blamed the game on bad dice? I've done it. Brad's done it. My internet did it this last week when it rolled a Yahtzee of ones. So let's just jump right into it. The SoCal the SoCal Open in San Diego. Our guest did stay classy there, finishing 18th overall with Sisters of Battle. And that is what we are discussing on today's show, his game versus Tyranids at the SoCal Open. Now, this is part one of the episode. In this part, we will analyze the game. We will talk about common mistakes. We will talk about the secondaries that both players chose, and we'll talk about target priority. Stay tuned for part two, or the Brad Hour, the Bradning, when we will dive into strategy adjustments, different things the player is going to change going forward based on their analysis of their game. We'll talk about the different ways their army plays into archetypes of lists that exist out there, and we'll talk about that elite player mindset. Let me introduce my co-host. On a warm summer's eve, a train bound for nowhere, I met up with my co-host. We were both too tired to sleep, so we took turns of staring at the windows in the darkness. Boredom overtook us, and he began to speak. He said, I'm a lifetime member of Team America. I've won a couple of Depticons, maybe more, who knows? He's a recent member of the Michigan GT. He's a nine-time member of Team USA. He's won a lot of Adepticons. He's a three-time top LVO finisher. He won the Armed Forces GT this year. He's a 2021 ACO champion. He's the runner-up of Games Workshop New Orleans. He recently became the Prime Minister of Canada, as he loves to tell us all, when he won the Studs and Snotlings GT, Mr. Brett Chester. Huzzah! I love the fact that you put a new random song in my head to be stuck there, probably permanently now. Each time well, we do something, I'll tell you. I see. I, I keep the theme the same though. I keep it uh, Kenny Rogers. You no, know, keep it. Keep a smooth Kenny Rogers through the episode, and all's good. It is there. <laughs> I don't even want to go to the other ones. We should probably now, introduce our guest. Our guest today is someone who has won the big dance back in 2018. He won the ITC and a whole slew of other major events leading up to that point. He has won the Bay Area Open twice. He has won SoCal Open twice. He has won LVO in 2019. He has countless other major large event wins. Mr. Brandon Grant. Well, it's really good to have you guys uh, talking with me today. I'm excited. Sorry for wasting your time with that intro of Brad, but he had to have it. I, I apologize, you know, for all that. <laughs> I am a pretty princess, and I need to have people well, tell me that. When you have that many accolades, it does take a while. And you got to put it in song form. You got to you got to do, do a little a bit of gambling. You know, you got to gamble on an intro and hope it works. <laughs> you got to gamble on whether I'm still going to be with us day to day. So that works too. <laughs> All right, let's jump right into it, man. Why don't you tell us a little bit about SoCal Open, just about the event, what your whole vibe was there, and um, you know, just everything about it. So SoCal is a really good event, in my opinion, compared to a lot of ones. Starting with the venue, it's a huge 
semi-outdoor facility at the Del Mar Fairgrounds. So you have enormous amounts of space between tables, and it's very comfortable to play in as a result. I don't have to run down three rows of tables to get around to the other side of the board. I just walk around. Speaking Uh, from someone that has tiny T-Rex arms, that is such an amazing thing to hear. It was amazing. So if you haven't been to the SoCal Open before, and it doesn't cost you much to get there. I totally recommend it as an event to go. I, I, I set out for 10 years from 40K and I randomly went to SoCal Open like in the middle of that spurt. I had not played a single game, just took a tiered army there and I lost every single game. It was amazing. But the venue was awesome. I completely agree. Now, the player paced, place terrain, that was what y'all went with in this one, right? It was the frontline yeah. gaming. And, and uh, tell us a little bit about that, Brandon. So I found that so far, it's the most balanced approach to terrain, simply because there are some armies where if you roll and go second against and they can see important things, none of those important things will be left at the start of your first turn. So having some semblance of, oh, I might actually be able to put five models on this objective and need to be killed without a line of sight or charged is huge uh, for a lot of armies. And it makes certain armies actually playable that wouldn't have been playable otherwise. Um, so I fully support it. It's definitely a step in the right direction. Does it go far enough? Maybe not, but that's a topic for another time. Yeah, that's a. We, that's, I think that's something we've we've delved into from time to time, and I completely agree. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about your list? Well, I was to say before before we hit the list on it, did your list construction change because of the fact that you knew you were going to have that player place terrain? Was there anything that you put in specifically because you knew you were going to have some hiding spots that you designed um, yourself? So. The John Lennon style list of Bloody Rose and Evan Chalice MSU with Vol and Celestine loves player place terrain so long as it's not mass airplanes and indirect fire because then that list falls apart. So that's why I brought the list that I did was the intent was I'm a little less good at playing player place terrain, but I'm more good if you can see everything and murder what you want. Yeah, because you have a little bit different scheme on it. Let's talk about the ins and outs of that list, because there are a lot of things that people won't be as familiar with. No, and I'm very happy to spread to other Sisters players, or even someone who hasn't played Sisters against Sisters yet, this idea of a pure Order of Martyred Lady list. And it's just a single battalion to save on CP. But the high-level strategy behind the list is the um, a Martyr's Duty strat from the book the card on book that has martyred lady rules is kind of what guides this list. So for one CP, when your opponent makes an attack against uh, an order of martyred lady unit before they roll anything, you can use it. And then for the rest of that phase, whether it's shooting or melee or what have you, it can even be an out of sequence attack. You can use it. It just says when they make an attack, um, when you would pull casualties, instead you first roll a die. And on a four up, that model isn't removed until the enemy is done making all their their attacks, at which point it gets to make an out-of-sequence shooting or melee attack and is then removed. So what this means is if you fly all of your planes to my side of the board and happen to destroy one of my Retributor squads, we'll get to that, which are armed with melta-guns, multi-meltas, every 4-plus I roll, I am basically going to get two melta-hits because as long as the squad is below starting strength and I didn't move in the previous movement phase, then I hit on twos. And uh, I'm probably going to be near my characters, so I'm rerolling ones to hit and wound. So I'm basically delivering two Melta wounds on a 4 plus for a CP for each Melta in that unit. It's absolutely horrendous to play into if you're trying to do a shooting Alpha Strike, um, and you have to get close enough to see me by getting around terrain that I can retaliate, number one. Number two, 
Kill those planes is what I'm talking about. That's super smart. Yeah, I like it. Uh, number two is I also have tools that are not as good as Bloody Rose in Melee, but are still reasonable. So Sacrosens, for example, are just all around okay infantry. They're just reasonably tough for their cost, reasonably killy for their cost. They're not Death Stars by any means, but they're just good. And then you have Marta, as she has been nicknamed, which is the Blade of Sacrifice character. And because I'm not taking Morvan Vol, I can give her the Warlord trait Vol would otherwise take and make her the Warlord. And because I'm Order of Martyred Lady, give her a second Warlord trait. So with all the abilities she has, the TLDR version is she expects to do 12 mortal wounds to anything T6 or less, period. And she also has uh, Fight's Last ability, which is if you are within three inches of her, she points at you and you fight last. So she is extremely difficult to get rid of in melee because you need two units that can kill her to get into her. And she's surrounded by bodyguard units, so you can't shoot her. And yeah, if she gets into you, she will murder whatever she touches with 12 mortal wounds. Yeah, so, the mortal wound output. Real quick, tell people how that actually works. Because that, that's what I say, yeah. That's a nasty combo, and it's in a lot of time. And that's the thing is, is the first time I played that, I was like, okay, so (laughs) that that seems like a lot. So you pretty much always take the passion, which is exploding sixes to hit in melee, and you combine this with um, a palatine. So a palatine has three attacks hitting on twos with a power sword. The blade of sacrifice replaces the power sword and allows you to stab Marta twice before she swings. She just deals wounds to herself, and instead of dealing damage normally with saves. If she would wound the enemy, instead she does however many mortal wounds that you did to her before she did those swings. So you do two wounds to yourself. You also combine this with the second, uh, the two warlord traits, which are righteous rage for full rerolls to hit and wound in melee, and martyr's strength, which is as you lose as you lose wounds, you gain attacks and strength. So up to a bonus of two to both. So she stabs herself twice, which procs her second Warlord trait. So now she's up to five attacks at strength six. Uh, full rerolls to hit and wound. But with exploding sixes to hit, she basically hits six to seven times, pretty much expected. Um, but we'll average it to six. And then if you're toughness five or less, I misspoke, then she's wounding on rerollable threes with those attacks. And of course, you can miracle die an extra six to hit for an exploding six if you really need to. Um, so you combine all this and 10 to 14 mortal wounds was what she very consistently does on every time she swings. The disadvantage is she only has four wounds and I gave her a blessing that doesn't heal her. I gave her the fights last instead of the blessing that heals her. So I put a hospitaller in the list and enough CP in the list and miracle dice in the list that I can also divine intervention her once a game. And she very consistently will kill two or three units a game just by herself. So the hospitaler with that strat can bring back some of the health she loses? Well, she can also- not a strat. She just walks up to you and at the end of the movement yeah. phase heals you for D3 wounds. And okay, the, she's strat, a and the, the strat is getting her back, and that's how many miracle dice you dump to see yeah, how many Yeah, so you have to use the CP ability, Miraculous Intervention, or Divine Intervention, to resurrect her at the end of a phase, just like Celestine. So that costs CP and miracles. And then the hospitaler strat is one CP to put D3 models back in a unit, but you can't put models back in a character unit when it's gone. That's pretty nice, yeah. So you get you get a little factory going there where she's almost like the special character is maybe even better. It's just so annoying to kill she's that model. 85 <laughs> points, but she costs essentially three CP because she's your warlord, she's a bonus warlord trait, and she's a relic, but two of those are free anyway. Why don't you get an Alyssa brand? That, that's a really interesting HQ slot. Let's see, let's see what you got beyond that. So the Palatine also has the reroll ones to wound aura, which is nice to have. 
Um, and we'll get into the other HQs here because it's just a battalion. Um, I've got the Hospitaller, of course. She doesn't take up a slot because I have a Canoness or a Palatine. And I do have a Canoness. So the, I have a second Canoness with a Blessed Blade and Rapturous Blows. So she has four attacks at Strength 6, AP 3, Flat 3 damage. And I gave her the Chaplet of Sap- Sacrifice, which is she always rerolls to hit everything. And when she dies and doesn't miraculously intervene, uh, she fights on death automatically. So she's annoying. And there's a third part of the relic, which almost never comes up, which is I can do a free uh, Moment of Grace strat on her once per game, which is the I spend a CP and a Miracle die, and I modify a die roll she just did for a hit, wound, or save by one after I roll it. So if she needed to pass her four up and roll and I roll a three, I can once per game spend no CP and a Miracle dice and she passes her save, for example. It's not bad. Um, the characters are so much stronger than people think, too, because it really actually messes with the maths. On it. it does. Because, you know, you're even if you're ready for the Miracle Dice, you're a lot of times not ready for the Miracle Dice and the Adjusted Die, because you effectively are making two saves that you weren't going to make. So yes. you're like, I have to use this many attacks, you know, with this many wounds to kill this. And then all of a sudden you went, oh, I just messed up all of my math. Because no, you need I to just, overkill her. I'm going to spend it, enough to, that she Exactly. Lives so much so oftentimes people do overkill her because she's t3 five wounds but when they don't oh i just need to pass one more save cool she's alive uh then we've got uh the other half of rapturous blows which is i can spend a miracle die once per game in the command phase and until the following command phase friendly units deal sick uh mortal wounds on sixes to wound and melee in addition to normal damage so that's if you have a death star and I have a lot of attacks, especially if I have rerolls to wound on Palatine, for example, then um, you might be taking five or six extra mortals from that, which is pretty handy. Um, and the other half of the Palatine is her Word of the Emperor Strikes Last, if I spend a Miracle Die for that, is enemy units do not have invulnerable saves if they're in range of her aura in combat, not in shooting. So it's another, oh, you relied on a four or three plus invul? no so it's a nice tool to have i'm getting excited about this because i don't see it as much i loved it when it first came out in the book but then i didn't use it as much have you been getting a lot of value out of that for the points Uh, i've played thousand suns and that word of the emperor one was fantastic into um a lot of four up and vulnerable saves it's like oh everything here has an invul no it doesn't and most of the attacks i was throwing in there were ap3 so they basically didn't have a save it was wonderful. Um, it makes it was, me happy inside. It, it was a little overkill at that point because I was in combat with everything important and it just died horribly. But it was, it, it, it definitely paid off in that one game. But mostly I'm taking it for the fights last because it's so annoying to get rid of her with other characters. And there was another game where I won where she took out the Super Succubus and the Super Archon in the same game because they couldn't touch her. Anyway, the third HQ slot is just Junith Aruta. And Junith's special thing is she has the Chapter Master reroll ability. So pick a unit in the command phase, it gets full rerolls, which is kind of nice. And then, um, especially for retributors that take a move penalty for their weapons, kind of nice. And then uh, she also is a, if you are wholly within six inches of her in our infantry, which is just about everything that's not a, a Rhino in my list, you are in light cover which is kind of nice to have um, in a few games. We'll come back to that. Anyway, 
For troops, I took three minimum Battle Sister squads, and I gave one of them a Hand Flamer and a Minstorm Flamer, and that's totally just anti-Drukari tech. It's, um, you better not get in combat with me with witches, or I'll use a Hand Flamer in melee, or possibly Overwatch your five witches. So again, you need to commit more, because if I have Sweet Pea to spare, your five witches that were going to clear the objective now don't. So that actually came in handy in a game, because uh, a squad of Incubi had to charge in first to absorb the Flamers. So I didn't spend the CP, but still, now you're committing more for 10 points. Anyway, um, then I've got three squads of nine Celestian Sacrosants, Maximum Sacrosants, all with Halberds. We'll come back to that. Two squads of two Crusaders, which are just literally action monkeys. Um, a Dogmata with the spirit, uh, Chorus of Spiritual Fortitude, which is the uh, turn-off psychic powers for one unit, which is absolutely amazing in certain matchups. I'm looking at you, Grey Knights and Thousand Suns. Um, otherwise, she just does war him all the time. And I actually gave her an extra warlord trait for Beacon of Faith. Um, there were quite a few times where, um, even with the Martyred Lady buff, Martyred Lady's abilities are, I gain extra Miracle Dice when units die, and when units are below starting strength, they're plus one to hit. So the extra Miracle Dice are really nice, but even with the extra Miracle Dice, it can be hard to do Leap of Faith, which is the secondary you, where you score points for doing Acts of Faith. So having the... Um, Beacon of Faith die to use for the discard abilities. Because Beacon of Faith has been nerfed, you can only perform miracles with the die with the character who has generated the die, but anyone can pick that die up and discard it to power up other abilities, like Divine Intervention or Moment of Grace. So it's nice to have that extra die just lying around every turn available for those abilities. Um, then I've got two Dominion squads with four Stormbolters each. The Mortal Wound strat is still really strong. For them, they can deal six mortals with it. Nine Zephyrim with a pennant for a reroll charges aura. Three Retributor squads. Two of them have four Meltas. One of them has three Meltas. All squads have two Cherubs. For the purposes of SoCal Open, they had ruled that if I make an out-of-sequence shooting attack a la the Martyr's Duty strat, I can use a Cherub during that. So two Cherubs was the order of the day. And then around out the list is three Rhinos. That feels like a lot. That feels like a lot to deal with. Like just bodies, 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 and uh, good bodies of that. It's, um, yeah, especially the Sacrosants are reasonably tough bodies as well at two up, four up. If they're near Junith, they've got light armor or uh, yeah, light cover in the open. So it's pretty easy to keep them at a one up most of the game. Nice. That, yeah, that's really good. Um, Brad, why don't you tell us a little bit about the Tyranid list that uh, our friend Brandon here played? Let's go fire this bad boy up and see how many turn and things I can mispronounce all the time. Because we start off with High Fleet Jormungadungadunger. High Fleet, if I don't advance, I'm in light cover. Exactly. <laughs> I was just about to say. I usually just state what they do as opposed to what they're actually talking about. So we get a Hive, hive Tyrant flying around. Pretty standard Hive tyrant -y. Pew pew, wings, doing all kinds of Hive tyranny stuff. 12.6 shots. Yep. <laughs> 28. Termagants with Devourers for all of the pew pew. Two units of three Tyranid Warriors with Lash Whips and Bone Swords. Now, Brad, do you know what Lash Whips do? Uh, lash Whips drive. I, I love talking about this. It, actually, tell everybody about this because I've actually had this done to me multiple times, and I play some Tyranids now, so I have been doing this in the past. Explain how annoying that can be, especially, for instance, if, I don't know, you were thinking you were going to pile in and take engage? Yeah, that's why you don't do that. But anyway, these warrior units are troops, which is wonderful. And they're fearless because of synapse. 
So, and they provide the fearless bubble of the dance, which is all great. But the bone, the, the lash whips are specifically once this model is removed, wait until the end of the phase before removing it. That's it. Like the, the attacks you get at the a, end of the phase. Such a big deal, though. The attacks you get are just nice icing on the cake. But you have these models that are dead, but are not removed from the board and are still treated as enemy models for pylons. And if you put these models in the right place, basically you do not get a pylon move after murdering them. And it's so huge because half the time that you're doing your assaults and everything in the fight phase, you're planning on, I'm going to touch this, I'm going to wrap this. You know, you that's can't. the whole point. Exactly. You can't do any of that. And all of a sudden you find yourself just standing there in front of the rest of the tear dance. So they're the ultimate cheap speed bump unit. I love them. Oh, they're so Yeah, it's pretty obnoxious. Yeah, it sounds really bad. Speaking of not speed bumps, two barbed herodules with two bio cannons apiece and the scything talents. Yeah, they're 12 but, shots at strength 8 AP2, 3 damage. Yeah, they're not playing around. They're, they're pew-pewing all day. Then we've got the obligatory before before we got our Leviathan uh, Chronos detachment with a Neurothrope, two units of 10 Hormigons, a six-man unit of Hive Guard, and the Lictor. And then we took the GSC for some blips, Cold of the Forearm Depper, Magus, and three units of hybrids with a Nexus with an auto pistol. And the hybrids have out. only hand flamers. Yeah, I was looking at it, I was like, I love everything about that. I actually love right? this. I, I love it cheap. I I think that for me. Uh, while GSC by itself, Pure is in a bad place, I think that they're such an amazing must-have for a Tyranid player because those blips can oh, zone so you good. out. You they block Alpha Strikes so hard. Yeah, you literally what just does that do? So a blip can't... Basically, the blip you put out, and you can get extra blips on the board also. So it's basically supposed to say where a unit's coming, burrowing from the ground. But you put the blips out, and the rules state that in the movement phase, for instance, I'm <clears throat> I'm charging Brandon's Tyranid army, and as soon as I get within nine inches of that blip, I have to stop. I cannot go any farther. I cannot you cannot move. get within nine inches. Right. You can't get within nine inches of that blip. And also, there's tons of stratagems and everything else for that. Pre, you can have blips that have are nothing, and or you can have blips where you can now move the unit somewhere else. So... You literally put blips in front of you, and they become nothing. Yes, and, and then you can push units out. back in reserve too. Exactly. So you're basically putting these out, these blips out, to stop all the alpha strikes. They have nothing to charge because you have nothing within twelve now, and also you can cut off the line of sights for the planes and things of that nature. So when someone's sending those big wild oh, yeah. boom blasters to take if care you're of your guard, six planes, a few of them might have to fly off the board turn one because the board is blocked with blips. Right. Exactly. It's it's and you can you can make the angles and especially with player place terrain blips are so nasty because you set your L's in such a way uh, your your walls and everything else so that your blips are stopping everybody from getting those turn one line of sights. On top of that, there's the ability of the Lictor, which was used in this game, which is it can go in reserve and drag a unit with it and drag the twenty eight termagants with devourers into reserve with it. Oh, that Fairmont Trails is so good. So they could teleport in anywhere. It, it's pretty good, uh, let me tell you. What's funny about the Gene Stiller Colts stuff is, like I said, I set out the game a long time, and when I got back in, Gene Stiller Colts were like bottom tier, and they've remained there since I've been playing. Oh, so yeah, you can't play I don't even, Gene Stiller Colts. They're, they're just not a complete codex. 
I've never even seen these models on the board before, so I'm, I'm interested to see this new codex. They, they, they used to smash. So. Well, no, legitimately, the, how many points per model are these hand flamer acolytes, the hybrid acolytes? They're 11 points a model, and they're troops? Yep, they are. Because my battle yeah. sisters are 11 points a model, and let me tell you, I will take the deep-striking, blipping, hand-flamery acolytes over <laughs> boring battle sisters with bolters every day of the week. They are just so much more useful. God, poor the the poor battle sister. Everything else in the codex got so buffed. There's so many great units in the they sisters codex. Twenty units, twenty strong sisters, good, but they're still two or three points over costed. If you ask me, they just don't do very much. Yeah, I mean the the, the thing is, is look at most lists on that. You're you're like, ugh, do I have to take a sister squad? No, literally every <laughs> slot in my detachment is full, and then min troops. <laughs> it's just they're they're so bad comparatively. You're like, couldn't Sacrosense have become troops? That would have been awesome. I'm gonna pull us back a little bit here. I'm gonna I'm gonna get us back in the unbroken format here. Let's talk about the game. Yes. Brandon, tell us what mission you played and what secondaries uh you and your opponent took. Uh all I remember about the mission uh, let me see. It was mission That's four, crazy. so I guess mission twenty-one, um, because it was the fourth game. So that would be no, not scorched earth. Surround and destroy. Surround, sorry. So surround and destroy has six objectives. Two of them are on the center line, and two of them are in each deployment zone, 40 inches apart, spread to the corners. So this map really requires you to be all over the board if you want to do the primary. And I really couldn't think of much better of a map for the Tyranid player because he can be anywhere. So having the objectives thrown about the entire map like this was really good for him because even in my deployment zone, I can't put enough units on both of my starting objectives to keep all those acolytes with hand flamers and the hive tyrant and the hive guard and the um, devour dance from getting one of them. So I didn't even bother trying. I just put everything on one flank and one squad of battle sisters on the other one. So I'd at least score that one turn one. Um, so your so your whole battle plan and going into this then is I'm just going to overload, turn this into an hammer and anvil, and just push over to one flank. Well, my whole army is a Death Star that needs to be close together to work properly. And I can't spread out over the board, at least in the early stages, and be very effective. Um, but I can actually move fairly fast with a Rhino Rush. So the plan that I did every game, even on the secondaries, was um, retrieve Octarius data, because I outflank Crusaders and they get points. Well done. So they get points every game, 12 22 points. Po 22 points of getting all their points. Yes, 44 points of I get retrieve Octarius data. Well done. And um, I also took Leap of Faith. Every game, uh, Leap of Faith is not trivial as Martyred Lady, but it's achievable as Martyred Lady. And especially if you're doing an aggressive list, so you're taking more casualties and taking more of their models off the board, getting a nice big stack of Miracle Dice is trivial in a game that's close because you're just losing so much. So that's a really good secondary. I'm going to get 12 points in a close game, and in a, an overwhelming game, I'll get eight. But I win that game anyway, so I don't see the downside here. And then the last one is uh, Stranglehold. And Stranglehold, I maxed every game. Never had a problem with it. My favorite secondary. Right? Do you remember what your opponent actually took on this one? Um, I think he also took Retrieve of Octarius data and maxed it. Um, and it's pretty easy, actually, with Gene Stealer Cult, because you do the strat where you are three inches away and you can't shoot, but you can still perform actions, because that codex came out before actions existed. Um, wonderful. So that's what he ended up doing is I completely zoned out one of the table quarters and he just came in anyway and rotted, which is just brilliant. So it's basically impossible for him to not do that. But I don't remember the other two. 
I know he didn't go for table quarters. I don't know if he went for stranglehold or not. It seems like he could have and just achieved 15 on it easily as well. I, I was thinking stranglehold when you were mentioning his army and everything in the battle you were on. That feels like the logical choice, at least. But the third one, after stranglehold and rod, I don't remember. So when you look across the table and you look at that army, do you feel like this is a rough matchup for you on this mission? Well, I feel like it's very easy for him to deny me primary points in the beginning. So the game plan from the very beginning was kill the hive guard immediately because those can actually shoot me off objectives. I'm not even worried about the him taking off what like a whole unit of sacrosins in a turn with double shooting simply because his whole goal this game is delay 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 and score the primary and prevent me from scoring the primary and then win. So what I need to do is crush him as fast as possible take over the center of the board and score high on the primary in the last few turns when he's run out of shenanigans to prevent me from getting objectives because he's not got enough shooting to remove my army. So eventually my weight of numbers are just going to tell. I just need to get to him. Well, the game ended up being super close. Kind of walk us through what happened through here. So, so if we're looking at the map, I was on the left side of my deployment zone and he was on the right side with his hive guard and the left side with his gigantic bio cannon critters, the barbed hyraduals. Um, and I went first, which I would have preferred not to, but I did the rhino <laughs> rush thing. Where I was just about to say, it, this is the worst in that the mission to go first to. I know, like, he's Oops. completely hidden. I can't see anything. Um, so I disembarked all the dominions and retributors and embarked all the sacrosins and then move advanced all the rhinos directly towards him as fast as I could. And, um, were placed in such a way that there was dense terrain between me and the big nasties and dense terrain between me and the hive guard and i didn't really kill anything turn one which is disappointing because i i like miracle dice i want miracle dice but what ended up happening ultimately is i ended up pushing with the sacrosins into his home quarter where the hive guard were and killing the hive guard in melee with the halberds unit and the whole game he's just doing every trick he can to shoot me off objectives and take objectives away um so he deep struck three inches away and took away my home objective and did the action. Um, partly we talked about it after the game, but what I was worried about was I could hide battle sisters so that um, his bio cannon units, the barbed hyra duels couldn't see them. But then if I did that, they couldn't totally zone out the objective from him doing this strat. So I thought it was better to force him to use the strat. Cause I think it's three CP to do it. The perfect, the three inch away strat. Um, just to at least force him to use CP instead of just freely shooting me off. But he argued that it would have been better if I put them out there and forced him to shoot them. I don't know. I'm still not sure. But there were the only mistake really that I made was bringing in my Zephyr a turn late. I did put them up in the sky every game to start. Um, what I could have done is use them to zone out my home objective that he ended up removing my five battle sisters from, so he couldn't deep strike directly on top of it, and I could have scored primary points that way. Instead, I waited for him to come in, and then the Zephyrim came in and murdered everyone on the objective and took it from him, um, except that he had one obsec model left alive, and he auto-passed it for 2 CP, so he held that objective, which was super Ouch. painful. But what it ultimately came down to was uh, actually time. So at the end of the game, I controlled 80% of the board. He had mostly just the two big monsters and 10 Gants left. That's it in his home corner where the hive guard weren't. And um, I needed a turn five to score about 22 to 30 points and win the game. And instead I 
didn't realize how the chess clock rules work, which is if I finish my turn with fewer than five minutes and he doesn't have five minutes or more on his clock, there is no, no more turns. You end. And I figured, oh, we just continue playing. There's time. No. So as a result, there was no turn five and I ended up losing on time. So I felt that this was a super important lesson. It's called read the RTFM, read the effing manual and uh, understand <laughs> chess clock rules because eventually someone's going to call you on it instead of just, oh yeah, we have time. Let's keep going. What is so explain that rule one more? Is that a standard rule for chess clocks? That's for I'm not ITC. sure I understand it. It's for ITC. ITC chess clock rules basically say if I think it's 10, if you it combine, used to be 10, now it's yeah, five. it used to be 10. I was to say it used to be 10 where you couldn't continue the game at if all. If neither player has more than five minutes, the da- game does not continue. So, so you could have like max, you could have say you have like 30 minutes and he has zero. Yeah. Does the game still continue? Or? Uh, yeah. As long as one person still has more than yeah. five minutes, you keep playing. One, uh, one person has to have more than five. But if both don't, the game ends. So that's really important as a lesson. Um, and actually, I ended up in game six clocking my opponent out. And he was on his way to tabling me. And I ended up winning because I just ran around the board scoring and he couldn't do anything about it. Because I had a little more than five minutes left on my clock and he clocked out. Ouch. Yeah, that is that is important to know, actually. especially. With- a lot of our uh, listeners are kind of newer players to the tournament scene. So myself included, I had no idea that rule existed and I would have absolutely got gotten on that. So, so what, I, what I talk a lot about the thing is, is that in all seriousness is when you go into tournaments, especially for the newer players, have all your aids with you, look at the terrain before you go to the tournament and kind of get an idea of where you're going to. I mean, I always encourage everyone to pull your army in the basement at your house, the store you go to before you ever get to the tournament. The more things that you can not sit here and think about, your secondaries, your deployment, you just have more time to play each and every yeah. game. My problem is I like high model count armies, and because of the way ninth works, it's a lot of note-taking, and I'm not used to doing it fast yet. So I struggle on time just about every, every game. But this was the only game where I actually didn't get to the last turn. You also have extra mechanics. <laughs> you have Miracle Dice and things of that oh, nature. Oh, the Miracle Dice plus the different miraculous abilities. Um, it's a lot of note-taking, and I feel like I need to write like a 10-page summary that I can hand to my opponent and be like, here's all the shenanigans, because there's just too many of them for my opponent to keep track of. It's like, oh, did you know my Warlord can force you to allocate all your attacks to them? Oh, okay, I, I guess... <laughs> There's just little abilities like that where, in my hands, it's godlike because I can charge. Anyway, the, the the stuff I can pull off with all these different abilities. If you don't know about them, it feels like a gotcha. Like, for example, my Thousand Suns opponent uh, explained that they have Auspex Scan, but with basically infinite range as long as they're near a sorcerer, and his list was full of them. So you couldn't actually deep strike anywhere his terminator squad of 10 could see because he would kill just about anything in the game in one shooting phase i'm like oh okay that's really important to know but that's what i felt like i was taking the extra time in the beginning of every game to explain everything and i was moving very carefully and the time just ended up being very tight in every game not just this one i'm not gonna lie it it wouldn't be bad if you just gave your opponent some sort of laminated sheet with like an overview and just say here as you said, you know, get your models to go in. I'd like that, but also I need to get more familiar with all the other armies in ninth. 
uh, COVID really did a number because I stopped going to events when there weren't events. I was going to say, I need more practice against other armies so I can go, oh, you're playing thousands of gone for a hot minute. (laughs) I know that. Brandon, one of the things our listeners like to know is how do elite players such as yourself really sit down and analyze the loss? Like after you take a loss, what's your method for like thinking about it and like adjusting afterwards? Um, So step one is to acknowledge that the dice are not to blame and your opponent isn't really even to blame either. It's all on you. You're the only one responsible for the outcome of this game. And not in the sense that like you could have won if you'd done these things, because sometimes the dice are going to decide the game. It's just silly sometimes. Like I think we've all had that game where we play on a not player place terrain game and we look at our armies and go, well, whoever goes first wins and someone goes first. And then it's like, want to go get a beer? But yeah, um, we've all been there when it's not that the focus of that mindset is to make it so that you analyze the game from a, what could I have done differently to further optimize this? And generally you're trying to make it so that the moves you make are just good enough to get you what you want while minimizing the risk or downsides that are present. So for example, I said, I put two flamers in a sister's unit because throwing five witches at it is now risky. If I overwatch, I could kill three of them easily. And then those two remaining witches, I'm going to kill on my turn and hold that objective. So that's a risk that the dark Eldar player or Jakari player can't afford. So they have to throw a second unit forward. So I've spent 10 points to make sure they have to throw 70 plus points more or a CP to take that objective away. That's really good. That's I'm minimizing the amount of stuff I have to throw in and maximizing their risk. That's all wonderful. It's the same thing with the the Incubi with their fights last thing. You don't use that offensively. You use it defensively to change the calculus for your opponent. Because you might just roll a box cars and now they they just die. It's literally, you, you get two people... You a lot of times those are it's the threat. We talk about that all the time, and the fact that the threat of something is actually way more important than what it actually does. Just the fact that this could happen. I could be here. This could happen. You could flame me. I could make you fight last. I could deep strike on the side of the board. Those are actually way more important than the actual effect of them. The threat because it makes you play differently. Yes. So at high levels, that's exactly what you're looking for is threat. And you're trying to minimize how much you have to expose and actually roll dice, but maximize your threat. So, for example, my retributors hit extremely hard. It's disgusting. But once they've shot, they're a known quantity. They can easily be taken off the board. They're just five battle sisters. So knowing when and where to commit them is really important. And it's one of the things I want to analyze post-game to change the list is... Maybe I need more rhinos with this list because retributors in rhinos are a huge threat. Retributors on the table are easy to get rid of. Don't, don't steal my thunder for part that two. Is a, that is a Brad Hour question, I, if I've ever heard one. The Bradening is about to happen. Everyone stay tuned for part two. Brandon, thanks for coming on, man. I am looking forward to just really getting into it in part two, man. Cool. Me too. Thanks for coming on, man. Thanks for listening, everybody. Make sure to check us out now on iTunes. Make sure to go in there, slam the subscribe button if you like us. If you hate us, I want you to very aggressively send Brad messages and tell him about it. Just really lay it on him. Make sure to check out our other podcast, The Art of War Vanilla, with the boy king John Lennon and his now father, uh, Steve Joel. 
Be sure to check out The Art of War Down Under with the late and great Adam Camilleri. Make sure to check out all the other great services we have to offer at theartofwar40k.com. Thanks for listening. Join us for part two. Catch you next week. Like what you just listened to? Check out Art of War and the Art of War Down Under podcast on the competitive 40K network. Theartofwar40k.com.